0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Lawrence B. Wilkerson, retired U.S. Army colonel and former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, who assesses the danger of escalation in providing U.S. F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine and prospects for China's peace initiative. Susan Greenhall of the group Free Speech for People, who examines the multi-state effort by Trump allies to steal 2020 election voting system software and the failure of the Justice Department to investigate these crimes. And Isla King, an activist arrested at a March Stop Cop City music festival in Atlanta, who talks about her weeks in jail and pending domestic terrorism charges that she and 23 others arrested now face. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: May 14th was the 75th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel, what Palestinians call the Nakba, or Great Catastrophe, when over 700,000 Palestinians were forced to flee their homes. Since the early 1990s, negotiations have repeatedly been held with the goal of reaching an agreement on a two-state solution and the establishment of a Palestinian state, talks that long ago reached a dead end. Today, three million Palestinians in the occupied West Bank live under the aging leadership of the Fatah Party's Palestinian Authority, while two million live in Gaza under the governance of the nationalist Islamist Hamas movement. Another 7 million Palestinian refugees are spread across the Middle East and the rest of the world. A New Arab News YouGov survey has identified a broad sense of despair among many Palestinians who feel trapped between an Israeli government they believe has no interest in forging peace and a Palestinian leadership they do not trust to successfully negotiate a deal with Israel. Unsurprisingly, the survey finds that an overwhelming majority of Palestinians, 86 percent of the 693 polled, believe that the current extremist right-wing Israeli government is not serious about signing a peace deal, of which only 14 percent of those polled remain optimistic. Some 63 percent of Palestinian respondents feel unrepresented by either Hamas or Fatah with the two factions attracting the confidence of only 11 percent and 19 percent, respectively. Brazil's campaign to expel illegal miners from indigenous Yanomami territory has taken a violent turn. Five people were killed in a series of attacks in late April in areas secured by troops from a Brazilian government-led environmental protection force. Yanomami leader Junior Hekurari told The Guardian 15 to 20 armed masked men entered the rainforest village of Ushu and opened fire on three indigenous males, including a health worker, who later died. Police returned fire and killed four gunmen. Brazil's human rights minister Silvio Almeida condemned the attack, declaring that their barbarity will not go unanswered. This was a second violent incident between federal police and illegal miners. The police had earlier raided an illegal gold mine and seized an arsenal of assault rifles, pistols, and shotguns. Under the regime of former right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro, illegal miners brought deadly diseases into the rainforest, resulting in the preventable deaths of hundreds of Yanomami children. The violence underscores the challenges and dangers involved in President Luis Inacia Lula da Silva's efforts to evict thousands of illegal miners from Yanomami territory, which had caused what he called an attempted genocide of the indigenous people. In the standoff over the federal debt ceiling, House Republicans are demanding new work requirements for recipients of food stamps and Medicaid. Yet recent research has found that such requirements to receive food stamps under the SNAP program would be counterproductive and force millions of vulnerable Americans to lose food aid. The House bill would raise the age of recipients required to work from 50 to 55 if they're eligible to work and don't have children. The bill would also make it harder for states to waive work requirements in areas of high unemployment. A recent study of work requirements in Virginia concluded these rules did not boost employment or income in the state. Study co-author Adam Leave of the University of California observed, we found it's the people who are the most economically vulnerable who ended up losing access to food stamps. According to government surveys across America today, one in ten households experience food insecurity, and the rate is even higher for families with children. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: As Ukraine prepares for its long-publicized spring offensive, President Biden told G7 leaders meeting in Hiroshima, Japan, that he had changed his mind and now supports a joint effort to train Ukrainian pilots to fly the American-made F-16 fighter jet. The training will likely happen in Europe, with U.S. personnel participating alongside NATO partners. No decisions have yet been made, on when the sophisticated warplane will be delivered to Ukraine, and how many will be sent. Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko responded to news about the F-16 by saying, We see that Western countries are still adhering to the escalation scenario, and he warned that it involves colossal risks. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has softened its initial dismissal of China's 12-point proposal on how to end the war in Ukraine, first announced in late February. In a May 3 interview, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken acknowledged that China could play a beneficial role in pursuing a just and durable peace in Ukraine. Your reporter spoke with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, U.S. Army retired, who served as Chief of Staff to Secretary of State General Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005, who is now a senior fellow with the Eisenhower Media Network that ran a full-page ad in the New York Times on May 16th calling for a diplomatic end to the Ukraine war. Here, Colonel Wilkerson assesses the danger of escalation in providing F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine and prospects for China's peace initiative. I hope
2: this is posturing. I hope it's a sign that we are trying to build a negotiating position and we're going to sit down and we're going to affect some diplomacy here. Because I don't think ultimately President Biden is dumb enough to actually put F-16s in the hands of the Ukrainians in a way that they can use them against Russia. That would be – a very dangerous move putin has recently said reiterated again but this time in very explicit terms we have a lot of weapons we'll use them any one of them we feel like we need to of course he means nuclear weapons and they have said at the csto collective security treaty organization that if nato were to make a penetration in some place that they felt was critical they would use nuclear weapons they call it in russian escalate to de-escalate think about that for a minute mm-hmm. <laughs> all the doctrine that we developed during a very long Cold War shows demonstrates I think conclusively to me a military professional that if once you start you don't stop so that's nonsensical to say you're going to use nuclear weapons escalating the war in other words in order to de-escalate but that's what it says in Russia. I have no doubt in my mind that if Putin ever gets to the point where he's backed into a corner that he feels both his life and Russia's existence is seriously threatened, he will turn to nuclear weapons. And then the cat's out of the bag. That's a very dangerous situation to be in. So I'm hoping that what we're doing, postulating that we're going to give these far more advanced weapons that have great range and depth and can strike all the way to Moscow, That that's a posturing for position with regard to upcoming negotiations. I think I hope Putin's remarks about the use of nuclear weapons are also that kind of posturing. But I don't know that. It would be extremely dangerous to let them have F-16s with pilots who could fly them. That's the essence of it.
0: Colonel Wilkerson, I did want to ask you about the prospects for China playing some positive role in developing a peace plan In the war in Ukraine, initially, the United States dismissed this plan put forward by China that was recently successful in negotiating an agreement to normalize the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But more recently, the Biden administration has, uh, they've warmed up to the idea a little bit, at least in their press releases. What, What do you think about China's role here for a possible way out of this war?
2: That's very true that they have made some positive statements, and I was encouraged by that. I know Wang Yi, uh, when Wang Yi was uh, lower down in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for China, Richard Haas and I conducted policy planning talks with him in Beijing in the the, uh, summer of 2001. So I would be very, very encouraging of using the good offices, that's what we call it in diplomatic parlance, Of everyone from Oman, who's been very instrumental in the deal you just talked about, in addition to the Chinese, and China. Uh, I'd use anyone's good offices I could respect and felt might do a good job about it. And in this case, Wang Yi would do a good job. Now, am I stupid enough to think that China doesn't have interest in this or Russia doesn't have interest in this through Sergey Lavrov? If we were to sit down, Sergey and Wang Yi and Tony Blinken, whom I don't think could hold a candle to either of those men, but nonetheless has to be our representative, would talk. And the thing they need to bring more than anything else, and here's where we're so faulty in this, is empathy. You must be able to put yourself uh, – even in fighting a war, but certainly in diplomacy, you must be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's another thing we tried to depict in our piece in The New York Times. I understand why Russia has done what it's done. I don't condone the invasion, and we didn't condone the invasion in the article. But we did outline a little bit of the history to show people who don't know any better, and our media is just dumb in this regard, show people who don't know any better that the Russians had provocation. And when we sit down to negotiate, we have to be willing to go into the talks with that kind of empathy. Otherwise, you're never going to reach success. You must be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes in order to negotiate successfully.
0: That was Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, U.S. Army retired, who served as Chief of Staff to Secretary of State General Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005. Learn more about the Eisenhower Media Network's advocacy for diplomacy to end the Ukraine war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Donald Trump is currently under investigation for multiple crimes. That includes an indictment on felony charges in New York related to hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels in 2016 Georgia's investigation into Trump's pressure on state officials there to find 11,780 votes to reverse his election loss, Department of Justice probes into Trump's post-presidency mishandling of classified documents, the finances of the Trump-affiliated Save America Political Action Committee, and the most serious allegation of all, Trump's multi-pronged attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election, including the violent January 6th coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol. But according to the group Free Speech for People, federal investigators appear to be ignoring Trump's likely involvement in a criminal conspiracy to access and copy voting system software as part of his broader conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election and remain in power. Since the January 6th attack on the Capitol... Evidence has surfaced that confirms Trump supporters tried to access and copy voting systems and software in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Colorado, and Georgia. A Georgia lawsuit indicates that these incidents were connected, and part of the broader plot to discredit and overturn Trump's loss to Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. Your reporter spoke with Susan Greenhall senior advisor on election security with Free Speech for People, who discusses the effort by Trump allies to steal voting system software and the failure of the Department of Justice to investigate these crimes. People
3: may be familiar with a plot that was described in an executive order to have the Department of Defense or the uh, FBI go in and seize voting machines. And that um, was in in this draft executive order that Sidney Powell is Um, alleged to have uh, drafted. And it was dismissed as being just too radical and crazy that they couldn't have the federal government go in and uniform and badges taking voting machines. But it turns out that there was another plot that was executed that was successful, that hasn't gotten as much attention. And after the uh, insurrection in 2021, there started to be incidents of voting machines being accessed improperly with the cooperation of complicit election officials in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Colorado. These were popping up and it seemed to be like one-off. But in 2022, a long ongoing lawsuit in Georgia uncovered another incident that was similar to the other ones where voting machines were accessed and the software that runs the voting machines was copied. Not the data, not the totals of votes, but the actual guts that run the machines. Copies were made, and um, it was the same sort of thing where there was a very complicit election official that let people in to, to go in and copy the software. This was uncovered by the plaintiffs in a lawsuit in Georgia led by the Coalition for Good Governance. And they, in their discovery documents, they found that not only were the people that went in in Georgia were they hired and funded by Sidney Powell and the Defending the Republic PAC that she had started, but that she had also a contract with the same people to go to other states, making it a multi-state conspiracy. So that was uncovered by this private lawsuit, not by the FBI, not by Georgia's secretary of state or Georgia state law enforcement. There there was a lot of press attention to it. And as this discovery process played out continually on the, on the lawsuit, They also interviewed or deposed Doug Logan, whose name may sound familiar for people uh, know that he was the guy that ran the fake audit out in Arizona. He was somebody that was invited in over the course of several days to copy the voting system software in in, um, this small county in Georgia called Coffee County. And they were being asked in the deposition, have you been contacted by the Department of Justice? Have you been contacted by the FBI? Have you been contacted by Special Counsel Jack Smith? And he and his colleagues were all saying no, which raised alarms for us. So we, free speech for people, and I, we're not associated with a lawsuit, but I am a consulting expert for the plaintiffs. So we were watching a lot of this, you know, in the front row seat and wrote a letter to the Department of Justice and the FBI and the special counsel in December of last year laying out all the evidence that they had uncovered, showing all the, the docket entries with the citations like very clearly that this is what they've uncovered, that there is this multi-state plot, and this ties what happened in Georgia to the other states, and also that the people that were involved had taken the copies, uploaded them to a share file site, shared them with an unknown number of individuals associated with the election denier movement and within their network, And we got a letter back from the FBI in February, early February, saying that they were not going to investigate this because they had not been invited in by local authorities, which doesn't make a lot of sense on its face. It kind of doesn't pass the laugh test because we know the federal government, uh, the federal law enforcement can go in and um, investigate when there's evidence of a potential federal crime.
0: Right. This is a federal election, and it would be a federal crime to tamper with elections that would bear on the outcome of that federal election, you would think. so. We only have about a minute or so left, but I wanted to ask you, why, in your view, is it important that the Department of Justice and Special Counsel Jack Smith take up this specific part of the investigation?
3: There are laws that prevent this, and people cross the lines when they did this. Um, So if you break the law, you should be um, held accountable, and they actually have videotape of surveillance video of the people coming and going. If those people were on surveillance, the videotape stealing $100 out of a bodega um, cash register, you know that they would be in prison by now, and it appears that none of these people are being targeted even at this stage of the game. And we have no evidence of an investigation. Um, so we need this to make it clear that it's illegal. It shouldn't be repeated. We want it to act as a deterrent. And we also need to fully understand how far this software has been shared. Was it shared with a foreign power? How, how could it influence elections going forward or, um, or disrupt them? And we need our federal law enforcement on that case and protecting us from these types of um, illegal activities.
0: That was Susan Greenhall. Senior Advisor on Election Security with the group Free Speech for People. Learn more about the Trump scheme to steal election system software by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On March 5th, 23 people who live outside Georgia were arrested by police as they listened to a concert in the South Atlanta Forest, also known by its indigenous name, the Wee Nee Forest. Those arrested were all charged with domestic terrorism and held two and a half weeks or more before most were released on bail. Police say they were responding to the destruction of construction equipment that occurred in another part of the forest. Those arrested had come to Atlanta in response to a call from opponents of Cop City, a $90 million militarized police training facility that's poised to destroy at least 83 acres of the forest to build a fake town for police to practice urban warfare that includes shooting ranges and a helicopter landing pad. The 23 arrested brought the total number of people charged with domestic terrorism in Atlanta to 42. Several remain in jail, either held without bond or on bail as high as $250,000. The Cop City project is opposed by many residents of nearby neighborhoods, which are mostly low-income and African-American. Opponents say it will increase police repression and negative health impacts such as asthma from clear-cutting the trees. In January, a young forest defender known as Tortuguita was shot and killed by police. Although officers involved maintain he shot first, that story has been discredited by a recent autopsy report. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhus spoke with 19-year-old Isla King from Massachusetts about her experience being arrested, held in jail from March 5th to the 23rd, and facing up to 35 years in prison on the domestic terrorism charge.
4: So after I was arrested... I was put together sitting on the ground with multiple other people or on the side of the street, uh, having police officers watch over us. Eventually, they moved us to a separate parking lot away from the scene of everything because they said it was too chaotic there. We were in handcuffs for at least six hours being interviewed individually in this parking lot. I don't think we got to the jail until... 3 a.m., and I was actually detained at around 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m. So this was a very long process, just getting actually to the jail. And while I was waiting in this parking lot, there were officers from Atlanta, surrounding counties, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. They had very large guns. They had military looking equipment cars and such this was a very intimidating experience everybody was just sat down in this parking lot for hours on end waiting to see what happens next at this point i think there was 40 people detained and they let everybody from georgia go which left 23 people when i actually got to the jail they had us stand outside gave us each covid tests brought us inside individually to take our mug shots and take our belongings. Then we got put in the holding cell, where I spent around 24 hours in. The lights in the holding cell were constantly on. If you wanted to get any sleep, your best bet was sleeping on the floor, and they gave us a blanket that we could use. There were no cots in the holding cell, nope. And
3: you were with the other people who were arrested that night? Or were you with other people who were not part of that arrest?
4: At first, I was with all of the women that were arrested, and we quickly became friends just because we all had similar experiences and we wanted to make it through this traumatic experience together. We would do things like tell each other stories, play games together, just trying to pass the time and cheer each other up while well, we didn't even know what we were charged with at this time. They then eventually t- took me out of the holding cell, gave me the jail uniform. Then I was put in a different holding cell waiting to get assigned to a pod. When I got assigned to a pod, they took me up to the fourth floor and luckily was able to go into this pod with another person that was arrested with me on that date which felt nice because they were in a similar situation to me.
3: So what was actually written on your charge sheet that supposedly justified the charge of domestic terrorism?
4: So they gave me a warrant, which appears to be copy and pasted from a lot of people's warrants, saying that I had mud on my boots and a metal shield. And it doesn't seem possible to me that so many people had metal shields when I didn't see a single one.
3: How much was your bail?
4: It was $5,000, which was actually very low compared to other people. I know other people had up to 250,000.
3: Lastly, Ila, are you getting therapy for this completely traumatizing experience?
4: Yes, I am. I'm actually reaching out to people that the Solidarity Fund recommended and they're doing that for free because they just want to support the movement.
0: That was Isla King, one of 23 arrested in Atlanta at a Stop Cop City music festival and charged with domestic terrorism. Learn more about the Stop Cop City campaign and the Atlanta Solidarity Defense Fund by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WTND in Macomb, Illinois, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, KODX in Seattle, Washington, Dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.